Welcome to another Eye for the Light podcast. This time we have a, a slightly different angle on it because we're talking to a travel journalist. But before we do that, I introduce my co-host, David Newton, professional photographer and currently touring around the world. David, hello. Indeed. Hello, Chris. Uh, good, good to chat to you again. It's been a little while. Uh, I hope you are well. Uh, as you say, yes, currently touring around the world. I'm well, you can't really see where I am, which is fortunate because I'm sitting in a hammock by a lake in Sweden. Uh, so I'm hoping the signal's going to hold out. Uh, but indeed, we have a very interesting uh, interviewee. I was going to say subject, but interviewee today. Um, uh, Emma Thompson is a travel journalist, an award-winning travel journalist, no less, who also takes pictures. Um, so hopefully lots of uh, interesting tidbits and, uh, and and is going to be a very interesting uh, interview. So without further ado, I'm going to let Chris get on and, and, and start and we'll see where we end up. So first of all, welcome, Emma. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So as David said, you're an award-winning travel journalist. Let's take it right back to where you started. How did you get into this and have you always been a writer? Oh, so I was a bit of a nerd in that I, from probably the age of 14, was travel obsessed and would spend my lunch breaks at school sort of researching places that I wanted to escape to as soon as I was allowed. Um, and then I, straight out the gate, started doing work experience for people like Lonely Planet and Wanderlust Magazine in my sort of school holidays, university holidays. Again, like I said, I was a bit of a nerd. <laughs> And um, and so I started building up contacts that way and then um, was able to break that sort of chicken and the egg situation of trying to get published, but no one wanting to publish you because they don't know who you are. By um, I uh, did some experience for the Oxford Times. I, they didn't have, well, they had a one page travel section <laughs> and uh, I offered to write something on the Ice Hotel when it first opened up. Um, the first time which is a long time ago now so I'm giving away my age a bit but um and so I wrote a piece on that and that sort of broke the, the stalemate and things went from there really. So was that your first writing job or were you writing with Lonely Planet and the other work experience stuff you were doing? Work experience they give you tidbits and stuff and I think for Wanderlust they were kind and they let me do sort of some Q&A answers but it wasn't enough to sort of it wasn't like an article it wasn't enough to say oh look this is what I can do um so yeah, that was one way of breaking it. And I also set up um, a travel section for our student newspaper. I mean, I cringed to, to write, read what I wrote then, but it was good back in the time. Well, we all hopefully get better with age. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so that was your first break. And, mm -hmm. and how did it then blossom from there? So then I got lucky because one of the last work experience placements I did was with Brat Travel Guides, the guidebook publisher. And I, just as I was finishing, they offered me a job. So I was finishing uni. And um, so I snapped that up because it was such a fantastic small company to learn all facets of the business and meet everyone there. Because I suddenly realized actually a lot of this job is, you know, about making contacts and meeting people. Um, so that was a really, really lucky sort of uh, coincidence that the timing was right for them. And uh, so I spent six and a half years with them as their commissioning editor and meeting everyone. And, and then eventually it got too much, you know, sending people to all these amazing places. And I thought, right, <laughs> I just want to give it a go. 
Mm. And um, you've gone on to, to win a number of awards. Have they made a difference to you in, in your career? It's an interesting question, actually. Um, it can be a nice personal boost because quite often you can be in a bit of a bubble. And it's nice to know that at least some people are reading what you're writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that it is nice and yes it can be a bit of a, a CV boost um, especially if you're working with newer bigger clients to say oh this and this and they'll be they'll trying to be a bit more trustworthy of your work okay um I'm, I'm going to jump in here um I'm, 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 I'm curious to know obviously you, you said you spent time as a, as a commissioning editor sending people off and then you decided to get out in the field yourself you've obviously uh, kind of travelled fairly extensively, I'd imagine. Uh, kind of comes with the comes with the territory. Where where's been your most adventurous trips? If you had to think back, oh, for for work or or just because I actually uh, anything anything. That. I mean, tra travel is travel. Whether you're travelling for work or or personal, what what do you consider? You know, a great trip, a really adventurous trip. So I left Brat to join a world first expedition crossing the Skeleton Coast in Namibia. Um, this opportunity came up through the Royal Geographical Society and it was just a once in a lifetime opportunity. So, yeah, that's why I handed in my notice with them. And funnily enough, I didn't actually take many pictures that trip. I was just surviving, trying to get through it. <laughs> but it was, um, yeah, it was really tough, but incredible landscapes sort of. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you're sort of familiar with that coastline, but it's really famous for all its shipwrecks mm -hmm. um, because the Abinguela current comes from up around Antarctica and it meets, this cold current meets the, the heat of the desert and it creates this very misty, desolate, very um, harsh coastline. Um, so that was an incredible experience. And then I have to say one of my favourite trips was probably to Sudan. Um, and then... Where else? Benin was really fascinating. And um, I, it's one, one of the times where I actually wish I was traveling with a full-time pro photographer because some of the um, experiences uh, sitting in on um, voodoo ceremonies would have just been incredible. And uh, I was too busy sort of scribbling at the time to try and get, get it all done in photography. So it would have been good. It, that leads me into a, an interesting question, actually. Obviously, as a, as a photographer traveling... You know, it's taking pictures all the time. But as a writer traveling, you're making notes. Are you mentally pre-writing what you're going to say? Or is it just notes that you then flesh out later on? So I try not to go with too many preconceptions because it can keep you a bit close-minded to things that unravel on the road. Um, but, um, yeah, I... I I do have a terrible memory, so I do have to scribble as I go. I know some people have this incredible ability to then just write up their notes in the evening, um, you know, in their tent in the evening or whatever. But um, no, I, I very much have to to pen as I go. So it's always a bit of a juggle. <laughs> Interesting. Do you find, and I'm I'm probably projecting myself now onto this, do you find that that in some way slightly engrosses you in the moment but also isolates you from the moment because you're trying to make your notes at the same time as experience it i'm thinking like when i'm taking pictures and i'm traveling i'm slightly isolated because mm, i'm looking mm. at it through a lens but at the same time i'm more engrossed in it because i'm really concentrating hard on it it's an interesting point i suppose you know with photography you always have to have your you know your your eye up to the viewfinder 
I've sort of perfected the art of being able to write without looking at my notepad. <laughs> so I can sort of maintain uh, eye contact with someone when I'm interviewing them or um, if there's something, you know, if there's like a festival going on where I can always keep an eye on what's going on. So slightly easier, I guess, from that perspective. Is there is there a particular aspect of travel that you like to focus on? Obviously, you've talked, you said interviews or, or, or festivals or whatever. Is there something that really gets you that you know gets you going and something you really want to cover a bit environmental or, or whatever it might be yeah so one of the things I'm really passionate about is um as you know probably the foreign office they're very slow with their warnings um about places and it can be a real um sort of detriment to those countries where the warnings stay in place far longer than necessary so I quite like going back to places that have been affected by sort of political upheaval or natural disaster to try and get people back into those areas. Because as we all know, tourism is a huge uh, income earner for so many. So it's nice to sort of get back on the ground as soon as possible. So that's the places I like going to. The, the journeys you've described, uh, the Skeleton Coast, Benin and Sudan, those are not easy luxury destinations. They're pretty tough trips. Hmm. What what inspires you to do them? Are you commissioned first, or do you then try and find story when you get, sell a story when you get back? So I, almost I don't think I have ever travelled without a commission um, before travelling. Um, quite often, I'll pick up other stories while I'm out there, but it's good to have two or three commissions under my belt before I go. Um, yeah, that's a good question because editors can be quite shy to cover these destinations. So for me, it's always a balance of perhaps covering something a bit more mainstream to then sort of pay off, you know, being able to do something a little bit more uh, off the beaten track, so to speak, uh, later on. So it's sort of a bit of a juggle. <laughs> and were any of those kind of led by you? Did did you choose those destinations and then try to Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I, yeah, I'd love it if an editor came to me and said, we want you to go to Benin. <laughs> no, it's, it's um, I'd say for most of those um, emerging or recovering destinations, I'm pitching sort of 80% of the time, maybe, maybe 95%. It tends to be the more established places where the editors come to me and say, oh, can you do a piece on Canada or... France, Italy, you know, the perennials. <laughs> and do where, where do you get your yeah. inspiration from? Like, as in, you know, these are emerging destinations. It's not like there's a lot of people going to them. Where do you get your ideas for stories or, or how do you come up with what you're then going to pitch? Yeah, it's a real mix. So, I mean, I'll also keep an, uh, an eye on news headlines and things that have been happening there. Um, um, it's... It can be random just speaking to contacts of contacts of someone who, um, you know, quite often it's grassroots tour operators that are um, sort of being quite intrepid people like, you know, untamed borders where they, you know, go off to Afghanistan and Iraq or um, it, it can be all manner of things. It's that's the thing. It's you're trying to keep a finger in lots of different pots pies what's the expression who's the writer here oh, <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so in in recent years you've gone on to speak and to appear on radio and tv was that pretty nerve-wracking the first time you did it and how have you coped with it since then um 
Yes, because I've always been told my Scottish accent's fairly unintelligible. <laughs> um, but no, I when I first did public speaking, yes, I was very nervous. I remember when I was at Brat, we used to we started giving um, travel writing weekends, and uh, I think I must have downed a bottle of. Do you know that rescue remedy it calms nerves? I must have downed about four bottles of it. <laughs> and. Um, but then, you know, as you say, practice and, and now it's fine. Um, and I I think the last time I really got nervous was I was hugely excited. I got invited to speak at National Geographic headquarters in Washington when I came back from traveling along the length of the Silk Road. And then I was nervous. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. But it gets easier. And then with radio and things, it's usually you're just speaking to a microphone. So it's just like having a conversation with you know, one other person. So you try to forget about everyone that'll be listening to it. Kind of a bit like this, really. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, a slightly uh, about-face question. Now, anyone that travels extensively, and, you know, Chris and I are both very aware of this, is forever being asked where their most favourite destination is, which is mm. the most horrible question. It's so, so hard. In, in, in counterpoint to this, where didn't live up to your expectations? Oh, okay, good question. Um, I'd say one place that terrified me that I would never want to go back to is Turkmenistan. Okay. It was um, just very eerie how controlled and um, the level of propaganda. Um, the, I remember even, because you're um, escorted at all times, uh, even our guide was nervous of saying things in front of the bus driver in case he was informed on. So he was very sort of stuck to script. Um, it was it was very sort of almost like, um, I'm gonna forget that name, like, um, oh, what's, what's that TV program with, with Iliad, with the maids and the- Handmaid's Tale. Thank you, it, it reminded me of that a bit. <laughs> I'm gonna get I'm gonna get strung up for saying this. No, I just remember we were we were driving past and there was um one of the palaces and um he basically intimated that people go in and don't come out for the smallest of misdemeanors. So wow, pretty scary. Yeah. Okay, so so take Turkmenistan off the travel list then. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't my favorite. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, just you know, um, thinking you know a little. Uh, a little aside now from the writing uh, you take pictures as you go as well and you know do you how does that work do you see pictures to illustrate specific things that you've written about or do you just stumble across pictures and see how they fit in later on that's a, it's a really good question because it's such a different approach and it's quite nerve-wracking talking about it in front of two pros. Um, but when I'm shooting photographs for a story, I'm thinking of the layout of a magazine article. So, for instance, the the way I place my frame, I'll be thinking, okay, can they fit the title in here? Is there uh, room for this the stand first? So it's a slightly different approach. Um, but then there is crossover in that you're you know, you are trying to tell a story with it. I almost see them as, you know, two stories woven together. You have the visual and then the the written. So you're you're always, you know, starting with, you know, a sort of 
uh, wide angle scene setter, you're you're going to have a detail, you're going to have a portrait. So there's there are similarities there in terms of um, having a uh, what's you have to cut this um, <laughs> what's a narrative arc. Thank you. <laughs> That's the one. Go on, I need um, some coffee. <laughs> Uh, that that in itself actually is is very interesting, and I think a lot of photographers would do well to take on board your approach in a, in that you're thinking how the pictures are going to be used later on. Because I know a lot of mm. photographers across all genres, but particularly travel, just shoot things that catch their eye without necessarily imagining how they're then going to be used and and how perhaps a commissioning editor might then use them. Exactly. And, and I think that's, you know, that's an incredibly valuable skill and obviously driven by your background, knowing what works from a layout perspective, what you're looking for to tell a story. Absolutely. And also the variety of formats of landscape and portrait, because quite often, you know, the what's available on the page will be also dictated about what advertising they have in. And so if they have a variety of the, the uh, orientation as well, that can uh, really help. So. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm 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 going to one more question from me, and then I think uh, we'll let Chris jump in again because he's sitting there quietly. Um, if if we were to offer you a plane ticket to anywhere tomorrow, where would it be to, and why? Oh, that's a hard one to spring. Um, do you know what? This is going to be not very exciting, but I've never been to Japan, and I'm absolutely desperate to go. There's um, there's these pockets of sort of um, uh, communities where, or, which I've been trying to organise a story, but it's been hard to get it off the ground, um, where they still live a very sort of authentic lifestyle in terms of um, the samurai principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think I'd go there. Interesting. There's actually an interesting story about Japan in the news right now. The, uh, the macaques, the Japanese macaques, have been attacking people, apparently. Mm. Um, Sick of being selfied. Absolutely, which is <laughs> concerning since I'm supposed to be seeing them in about two months' time. Oh, well, wear your head to protective gear. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll go in full body armour. <laughs> it's interesting that you um, always get a commission before you go because many photographers will travel independent of a commission and then think about how they're going to place the pictures afterwards. Would there, would there be any circumstances where you would just go up and, and do the trip and then try and find it afterwards, find a story afterwards? I mean, I'd l- love to be able to do that. It just comes down to finances for me, really. Um, I need to make it financially. It's always a bit precarious and it sounds uh, glamorous, but it's getting harder and harder to making a living from <laughs> travel journalism. So I, I think I just need that financial security. But yes, if I had the opportunity, I absolutely would because it gives you so much more freedom and flexibility. Is your writing mainly for online now, or are you also writing for, for printed? No, it's mainly still print. So, and yeah, doing a bit more for the US and things like that as well. And I believe you've just uh, put together a book, which I think is not yes. quite out yet, but nearly there. Tell us yeah. about it. Yeah, well, this was a lockdown project. So I, one of the things I sort of became sort of quite passionate about during my travels was finding quiet places and I interviewed a fascinating sound ecologist called Gordon Hempton um, and he's been studying the world's quiet places for 20 plus years and their findings are actually quite shocking in that 
they actually think our ability to be in a quiet place and that means no sort of it's not the absence of sound but where there's no man-made sounds um, you can't do it for more than 10 or 15 minutes which is quite surprising um, um, and so he said that actually these places are becoming endangered at a faster rate than well it might be a bit dramatic than the uh the polar ice caps are melting. Um, and I was just fascinated by this concept. So we expanded it into a book to try and find um, 50 places um, where you still can go to find these quiet places. So, and yeah, where were they? What's your favourite one of those? Well, there's different chapters. So some of them are very remote and take a long time to get to. And then mm. contrast with that are sort of little pockets within cities that you might not expect. Um, so places like St Dunstan's East in London is this beautiful sort of um, abandoned cathedral that's just sort of this little oasis in the middle of the city that people walk right past without knowing. Um, it's an interesting conundrum for photographers and for writers apparently as well um, that you publicise places because there's something unique or special about them and then everybody floods there. Mm -hmm, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? It's a, it's a difficult one. It's um, the thing is with some of the more remote places, the cost of getting there is prohibitive. So I, I didn't feel I felt okay about including those because, um, as, as bad as it is, elitist, it'll keep a lot of people away just because of the time and, and resources required to get there. Um, but yeah, no, I have held back places in the past where I thought actually this is not ready for an onslaught of tourism, like it needs more time. So to let things sort of try and develop at their own, own pace, because you're right, it's, it's becoming a more and more common story of places just adapting or trying to adapt too quickly um, and getting it really wrong. It's the, the, the beach effect, isn't it, Alex Garland, the beach, yeah, where suddenly, absolutely. you know, it goes from this incredible oasis to an absolute horror show. Mm -hmm. Indeed, bit sad. <laughs> So beyond the book, well, when is the book out? September. When can we, okay. 8th of September. 8th of September. Okay. So actually not long to go. Probably by the time you're hearing this, everybody, <laughs> it'll be available, I guess. Um, what's next for you? Now you've got the book done. What's your next big project? Where are you off to next? Or what are you working on? Or So I'm headed to Australia on the 10th of September for five weeks. So I'm trying to adjust the way I travel slightly since you know, after the pandemic. Um, it was a good reset option. And I was taking so many flights beforehand and I just, I couldn't um, tie it up. Um, so I'm trying to um, go to places for longer and gather more stories while I'm there. So yeah, off to Australia for five weeks, um, uh, mainly on the West Coast. There's um, a new initiative uh, where the Aboriginal communities in the Kimberley region have been setting up their own campsites to bring in income to their uh, Indigenous owned lands. So I'll be staying with a couple of families there and uh, yeah, a couple of other stuff along the way as well. <laughs> Interesting. Do you um, do you keep a list of, of everywhere you've been? Do you, do you have any desire to visit all 192 countries? You know, it's funny, I get asked that a lot. Um, and people don't believe me. I've never counted how many places I've been to. I don't believe you. Yeah, don't believe don't me. Believe you at all. No. <laughs> 
I, I think I'm going to have to. I think I'll just sit down and do it one day. It's just... Um, there's, an, there's an app for it. You can do it online. You can just go to a website and punch in every country. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Up, yeah. You list of all the countries. You just tick them off as you go. Okay, I'll do that. Weekend, weekend uh, thing. That's something, something to do when you've got a quiet five minutes. How, how many places have you been to? Uh, I'm on 70. And it will be 80 by the end of this year, and I'll have completed the seven continents. Okay. Because there's always moving criteria, isn't there, as what counts as having seen a place. So I'm exactly. sure. It, it, it's I a remember. real, uh, it's a real like, you said you were a nerd. It's a bit of a nerdy tick listy thing because you visited somewhere, but have you ever really seen anywhere? Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember being on a plane one time and I, uh, I was oh, I was doing a story in the Guianas and I sat next to this lovely elderly gentleman and we were leaving French Guiana and I said oh you know I did have a nice time and he said oh I was only here for the day and I said oh because we were flying back to Paris and and I, I said for the day he said oh I just wanted the stamp in my passport <laughs> so he'd flown all the way from Paris to French Guiana and spent four hours there five hours and I was like well it is a it, it's a bit of a collector thing, isn't it? You know, people collect stamps or postcards or whatever it is. But stamps in your in your passport is is another one of those things that people can you know. A bit embarrassing when you show someone your passport. And they're like, "Oh, what was French Guiana like?" And he's like, "I haven't got a clue." <laughs> I saw <laughs> no <thing>. idea. <laughs> yeah. Got the stamp though. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, I like to. Really not too worried about his environmental footprint. Well, indeed, exactly. It's, uh, Anyway, <laughs> how many places have you been wow. to, Chris? Pardon? How many places have you been to? 82. 82. Oh, just ahead. I didn't realise you were ahead of me, Chris. that you can count them on. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's traditional on our podcast that David always asks one question. So rather than try and finish before he does, I'm going to throw it back at him. Go on, David, ask your question. Uh, okay, so it's... Um... I suppose it's a bit of a trite question, really. But if you could go back to when you started, to the younger you, mm. what piece of information or advice would you think would be particularly valuable to pass on, something that would be really useful uh, or would have been very useful in your career? My career? Or life. It could be anything, really. You know. Gosh, I have to think of something wise now. Um, I'm intrigued to see what other people have said I, I don't remember you asking that the first question on the first episodes of the podcast um uh what would I tell myself can I be you're gonna kill me for saying this I probably wouldn't say anything to her I would just let her make the mistakes and learn as I've learned because I'm yeah I've just enjoyed the journey so far <laughs> I think that's a brilliant answer. I think that's a phenomenal answer, particularly for a travel journalist. And and actually, I think we might have to sum this up as enjoy the journey. Indeed. It's, it's the, the journey, not the destination. Indeed, yeah. indeed. <laughs> God, I've ended on such a cliche. That doesn't work well for a writer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we led you down that path. It was entirely us. <laughs> I actually had, am I allowed to ask you a question? Both of you of course question? you can. Have you been asked, because I was interested in what your thoughts are on smartphone photography and travel? I mean, this could be a whole podcast on its own. 
because um, I bring it up because I had an interesting uh, thing happen and you can cut this if you want but I had started getting backache from carrying all my equipment and actually when I went to the sedan I I uh, I'd got well this was I think it was the iPhone 7 iPhone 7 plus at this point and uh, I sent a couple of the images using the you know HD to my editor at Nat Geo and she said actually these are okay um, and uh, so I took that and it was quite revelatory because one of my things that I never got around was whenever you pull out a big camera, especially when you're in remote destinations where I tend to be, people can get very nervous <laughs> and it takes a bit of time to sort of, you know, I usually try to keep the camera away for a while anyway and then bring it a bit later. But people tend to just get sort of, you know, a tense. But everyone recognises a mobile phone. And as a result, I got a lot more relaxed portraits. I got some incredible stuff where the kids took the phone themselves and took their own photos. So I'm just, yeah, I was intrigued. First, David, what do you think? Uh, I think um, in the last few years, particularly mobile phone photography has blossomed. And you are 100% right. If you bring out a big camera with a big lens, people instinctively shy away from it. Mm. And you then have to go and break down barriers to try and get them to be natural and not ham it up or, or whatever it might be, or even just to let you take their picture. Whereas a mobile phone does seem to maybe break down those barriers quicker or, or, or doesn't even create the barriers in the first place. And I say in the last couple of years, because it's it's been in the last maybe four or five years where phones have become sufficiently capable mm -hmm. to create good quality pictures that are usable for professional purposes. Now, do they miss out on things that, that big cameras have? Of course they do. But oh, absolutely, yeah. at the same time, you know, is there a trade-off between the access a phone gives you compared to a big camera? versus what you could get with a big camera which would image quality terms be better but you maybe wouldn't get a moment or you wouldn't get access and so i think there's an interesting dichotomy there and, and even actually I'll, I'll take take a for instance from just my last trip i was in jordan and you go to the gates of jordan you go to petra and there is a particular corner as you come through the sick, you turn around to the right-hand side, you've got the, the, the gates in front of you. And there's like a little ledge just hidden around a rock corner. And everyone goes to take their picture there. And so I had all these clients who were like, oh, can you take a picture? Can you take a picture? And I took one look at it and I was like, well, I could take a picture with a big camera, but then I'm going to have to get a flash out because the light's horrible here. It's, it's beautifully lit over there. You're in yeah. the shadow here. Just give me your phone. <laughs> I will take a picture of you with your phone because it's going to be significantly quicker. Yeah. And just as good for what you want of it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, you know, mobile phones do definitely play a role in travel photography. And I think they definitely have a place. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that the usage thing is a very important part of this decision. Um, the quality has improved. One thing mobile phones don't give you is the control in difficult lighting conditions mm -hmm. that uh, are. are use the words proper camera, uh, you know what I mean by that. Um, so I think it's important to choose the usage. It's it's always been an interesting thing, this interaction with people. And um, 
many years ago, I changed cameras and I had big chunky uh, SLR or digital SLR at that point. And I stepped across to the smaller cameras. I, I was looking for something smaller and it was at the time that Fuji brought out their X series and mm. they looked like old Leicas. Yeah. Well, they did at that point. Um, and I went out the, in, in London to take some photographs on the street and it was a revelation because suddenly people either weren't interested in me as a photographer or if they were, they go, oh, is that an old Leica? Oh yeah, of course you can take my picture. And it opened up all sorts of picture opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I'd been walking around with the camera and a long lens. The other thing I do if I do have a bigger camera is um, I blend into the background so I don't get the camera out for a while. Mm -hmm. I usually keep it so that it's not obvious it's a camera. It's got a long lens on. I never show people the length of the lens, the people I'm photographing. They only ever see the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, they get less nervous. But I mean, if, for example, I was traveling in a market, I'd probably go and chat to the store owners and buy something. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah. then you become, you know, just one of the visitors. Um, and after a while, you can get your camera out and start taking pictures. So it, it, the answer to your question is it really depends on what you use it for. I'm not a big fan of mobile phone photography um, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I don't think the quality is quite yet, there yet but I can see it has its uses. I just think it's an interesting debate because there's also, you can talk about sort of the, I guess, democracy as well, because the price point, it does make it accessible as an art form to others than say, you know, getting a full DSR and kit lenses, everything. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. It, it very <laughs> much. There's a lot of, you know, mobile phones have democratized photography, not from a price point perspective, but because everyone's got a mobile phone. So by default, everybody has, a half decent camera you know talking modern mobile phones it's if you've already paid a thousand pounds for a phone do you then want to go and spend another thousand pounds or more on a camera when you've got a device that for many people can do most of the pictures they ever want to do until they go a bit further in their photographic journey yeah and by no means saying that just because you have your phone you're a photographer but <laughs> no no, no. <laughs> it's just no, not uh, at all. but yeah it's uh no it's interesting it's the same argument as if you've got a pen or a pencil, you're a writer, and it's you know, <laughs> both have a lot more skills to than, than become apparent from just taking a snapshot. Mm. Which, you having said that, Chris, reminds me of the uh, one of my favorite or, or biggest bugbears, I guess, when you show people a picture and someone goes, Oh, you must have an amazing camera. Do you get like you don't get it as a writer, but you must have an incredible typewriter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your keyboard must be out of this world. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. But does this mean you're going to? Does this mean you're going to be using mobile phones more in what you do, or is it? Is there? A, a no, no, the same as you. Like it, it depends. Um, it's, but I've also found it as good as an icebreaker, especially um, if I'm staying with communities to give the phone to the kids and then I bring out my bigger camera. It's sort of a balance of things. Um, yeah. But I just, I, it was just interesting for that trip because it was all I took and it made me very nervous <laughs> because, you know, Sudan is just stunning uh, and the light is unlike anything. Um, and, um, but, you know, I was, I was just blown away really by it. Time really what about since Sudan did you go? Uh, mainly around the north, um, I was covering um, the the sites related to the Black Pharaohs and all the pyramids and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. 
Well, I think that's been a really interesting chat, Emma. Thank you very much for that. It's it's been quite different from our other ones, which have been more photography focused. And I think it's nice to have that change of pace. Oh, glad. It's, it's been yeah, it's been all the better for it. I think. Oh, it was great chatting to you both. Thank well, you very much for your time. Enjoy your travels, David. Uh, I will. Yes, uh, I look forward to seeing your book when it's out, September the eighth. You said, and is, is it called Quiet Places? Yes, Quiet Places. Quiet places, perfect. Uh, available at all good bookstores and online, I'm guessing. Indeed. Order your Christmas presents now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Thank Emma. you very much. Take care. Bye.